Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 21, 33 through 44. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent another, other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Jesus said that you delight to give us your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to your word, that helps us to understand it, that helps us to love it, that leads us in joy. And I ask right now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit through the reading and preaching of your word. Pray that you would bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. When you restore a classic car, most guys would like to be original up to a point. Some guys take originality farther than others. You know, a guy might call a boneyard to find factory original parts if he can. He might have to order remakes. He might choose a a color that the factory would have used when the car was new. I want you to imagine with me for for just a moment a man restoring a a classic car. For for the sake of illustration, let's say it's a 1957 Chevy Bel Air. He might have to to strip it down to the frame. It it might need some reinforcing. It might have rusted out and and maybe needs to have it sandblasted and, and maybe some steel reinforcements welded to it to make sure that it's strong again. He'll probably need to to refinish or repaint the body. It might need some Bondo. It might need a couple of dents pulled out. He may need to reupholster the interior, and he may need to rebuild the engine. If this man wants to keep it as factory original as he can, so he's the kind of guy that calls boneyards from all over the country and as much as possible finds factory original parts. He insists on painting this 57 Bel Air two-tone color combination originally offered from the factory of India Ivory and Matador Red. 
Imagine this sparkling in the sunlight. And now imagine after years of work, he is finally ready to take it for a test drive. And the only thing he has left to do is he needs to put tires on it. Do you think that he will find tires from 1957 for his restored car? No, because 62-year-old tires will not hold air. The rubber will be dry and cracked. But I want you to bear with me and imagine for just a moment that this man is a fool. Let's suppose that he found four white wall tires from 1957. He manages to mount and inflate them to factory specs of 28 PSI. And then he takes that car out for a test drive. What will happen on a hot July day at 70 miles an hour on I-75? At least one of those tires will explode. They will not hold air, and the car will be wrecked. You cannot fill old tires with fresh air. The results are disastrous. And in the scripture, in in Luke chapter 5, Jesus says this, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. What Jesus means, just like a tire that's old and cracked, an an old wineskin made out of leather would dry out. And if you put new wine in it, as the wine continued to ferment, the gases that would be released from it would put pressure on that skin until it burst. And so the skin would be destroyed and the new wine would be spilled. Now what was the point of him saying that? Why was he saying anything like that at all. Well, here's the meaning that's relevant for you and I, just like it was for his original hearers. If you love the way that you do things without God, you have no future. If you love the way that you do things without God, you have no future. We have been looking at the book of Luke as a church, asking God to help us see Jesus very clearly in his word. We have so far seen how Jesus had victory over Satan, how he resisted every temptation so he can be our savior. We have seen Jesus preach the good news of the kingdom, that God is going to rule and rescue the poor. There will be no victims when King Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne. None. We have seen Jesus heal the sick and lepers. We have seen him cast out demons. He demonstrates absolute authority in the physical and spiritual realms. And if you are broken and discouraged today, that should give you hope because Jesus still has the power to rescue and deliver and to save. 
We have seen Jesus welcome everyone as he preaches and teaches. He goes and speaks with people that others would not. He is willing to touch a leper. He is willing to spend time with a tax collector. He is criticized for spending time with sinners. But he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He makes a point to go to people that the religious leaders had pushed away. And that is when he warns the religious leaders, if you put new wine in old wineskins, the wine will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. And so in other words, Jesus is saying to his hearers, God is doing something new and exciting. But they didn't care. They didn't care because they wanted Jesus to be just like them, to uphold all of their man-made rules and to abide by all of their restrictions. They wanted to contain his new wine in an old wineskin of tradition. And when Jesus came, he clearly said, your traditions are keeping people from God. Here's the thing. When you dismiss the Son of God, it's not as if you can just go over in a corner and do your own thing. You don't get to separate out and say, okay, Jesus, you go over there. That's, that's your space. I'm going to go over here. This is my space, and we'll just never interact. It doesn't work like that. What Jesus said is that if you try to contain him, you will be destroyed. There is no future if you are fine doing things the same old way apart from God. So in chapter 6, where I preached from two weeks ago, before we went away, we saw a serious fight with the scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted Jesus to keep their man-made rules. They criticized the disciples for picking grain with their hands and eating it, which was perfectly lawful. And Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You don't tell me what the law means. I tell you what the law means. The law was given as a blessing for people, not as a burden. And the law can be summed up. You love God and you love people. And so Jesus begins establishing his authority in the religious sphere saying, I am the one who will tell you what the law means. I will tell you what God meant when he gave it to him. And then... On another Sabbath, he enters a synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand. And the religious leaders, they're no longer listening to Jesus because they want to learn from him and hear from him. Instead, they want to see if they can catch him breaking the law as they understand it. And Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And in verse 11, instead of finding people who are praising God for his mercy... Instead of finding people who are amazed at the power of God displayed in the person of Christ, it says the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now there is real irony here because they think that they are in a position that they can do something to the Son of God. And while they are plotting, thinking that they can put a stop to God Almighty, Jesus goes out and starts something new, 
something that they cannot contain, something that will lead to their complete and utter destruction. So I want to encourage you, open your Bibles with me this morning. As I said, I'm in Luke chapter 6. You can find it towards the end of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Open it, find Luke, go to chapter 6, and follow along with me starting in verse 12. It says, In these days he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now think for just a moment what Jesus has just done in these verses says he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And, and I think you get a sense of Jesus' dependence on the Father in his ministry. He understands this conflict is building up. He depends on the Father as he's about to choose the twelve apostles. But I think the most important verse, and there's another sermon to be preached on the way Jesus depends on the Father in prayer and how we need to depend on God in prayer. That's another message. The, the important thing that we need to see today is when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. That might seem like a small thing, but that's huge. Think for a second what this means and how crazy this sounds. The Jews understand that they are the people of God because they are literal children of Abraham. God Almighty called Abraham and promised to bless him and said, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has his 12 sons, and the people of Israel identify themselves as God's people because the 12 tribes descend from 12 sons. And when Jesus goes out and appoints 12 apostles, it's almost like a new employee showing up at a company and appointing a new board of directors to take things in a different direction, while the current board of directors still exists. Something's going to give. The two cannot continue side by side. But it's infinitely bigger than that. Because this is not a company, this is not a human organization, this is the people of God. And Jesus doesn't come saying, I am a prophet in the same way that every other prophet spoke for God. Every other prophet was among the people. And Jesus is among the people, yet there's something to be learned from the fact he is not one of the twelve. He calls the twelve. And just as God called Abraham, Jesus is showing his divine authority to start the people of God afresh with something new. Jill read just a moment ago from Matthew when Jesus is explaining 
to people who had rejected him. He said, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. There is an act of blessing for the people that Jesus is creating as he calls the twelve and as they extend his ministry. But there is an act of judgment as the people who should have welcomed him as the Messiah have begun to shut him out and push him away and they only want to get rid of him. Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, if you read Luke, God's word is so surprising. You would expect that the Son of God would have zero opposition because he is God's Son. He has absolute authority. And what you find instead is that when Jesus comes, he ultimately is crucified. He doesn't immediately ascend the throne. And if you read this, and it seems like this plan of God is not going very well, you need to remember that God had already said that this is exactly what would happen hundreds of years before Christ. And it's not a sign of weakness that Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders. It's a sign of the wisdom and of the kindness of God. So that verse that Jesus quoted, and he explained in that parable about the vineyard and and about the people that wouldn't give the fruit to the landowner, that that parable where, where he sends servants and the servants are killed and then he sends his son and his son is killed and he says, the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. That verse that Jesus used the parable to explain is from Psalm 118. It's a psalm that is hundreds of years older than Jesus Christ. God had been saying that that would happen long before the Messiah ever came. And the prophet Isaiah, in the same way, he predicted that the Messiah would bear the sins of the people and then he would be vindicated by God. And even in Luke... This is so important because sometimes people say, well, you're just, you're just finding a verse to support what you're saying from the Old Testament. No, even in Luke, that old prophet Simeon went up to Mary at the temple and he said, that little baby is appointed for the rise and the fall of many. And he said to her, and a sword will pierce your heart also. Paul says in Romans 11, the way that the Jews rejected Christ ultimately ended up for the blessing of the entire world. Because what happened is that the kingdom of God immediately went global. And you can actually see that in our text today. So, so there are a couple of things that I, that I want to mention even before we move on. Number one, we can worship Jesus for his faithfulness in doing what the Father called him to do. Jesus did not have an easy ministry, and he never gave up. And we can praise him for that. We can thank him for that. You can also see the plan and the purpose of God in what he does in a very specific way. And I want to talk about two words that you see in verse 13. Disciples and apostles. We use those words so often, I don't think we always think about what they mean. Because a lot of times, the scripture refers to the 12 apostles as disciples. They were disciples. 
but it also refers to the entire church as disciples. So as Jesus establishes ministry, he has a group of people that begin following him. And a disciple is simply a learner. It's someone who follows a teacher. You don't just attend class. You know, when we do school, you attend class, you know, seven hours a day while you're in high school. And, and then when you're in college, you have so many credit hours every week. And, and you learn in class, and then you go out in your own life and figure it out afterwards. It's not a great system. What they did in ancient times was if you wanted to learn, you lived with your teacher. And what this did was it meant that you not only got intellectual content, but you saw that content applied in real life. You had the opportunity to not just hear Jesus talk about the law, you got to see him live the law as he interacted with people. And so there is actually a large group of disciples. The text has said up to this point that people from all over Israel are coming and following Christ. There were a number of disciples. And for you and I today, if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts talks about the church as disciples. We are people who want to learn from Jesus and follow him everywhere we go. He is with us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I, I often haven't thought of myself as a disciple. That's not a word that I use a lot. I always think of the 12 apostles as disciples. But when this text is describing that, that Jesus calls his disciples, it's a bigger group than that. And it's a group that can continue to include you and I today if you count yourself as a follower of Christ. It shows a dedication to listening to the Lord and following his example and not just knowing his teaching, but living his teaching. So Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as the Son of Man, Jesus as the Son of God, has a group of diverse followers that's very large. And from that group of disciples, he calls 12 apostles. And he is doing something new, something that will not exist side by side with the old religious traditions that no longer represented God's intention for the law. And so he calls from the 12 disciples, 12 apostles. Now an apostle, the word literally means someone who is sent. Apostle is just someone who is sent. We would think of them as ambassadors, Someone who goes and represents someone in an official capacity. Now, you think for a second, you know, I'm an American. If I go, say, to Canada, I can represent Americans, but not in an official capacity. I can't speak with any authority on behalf of the nation, but if you are appointed an ambassador by the President of the United States, you can initiate treaties you actually can represent your country in an official way. And so what an apostle is, is someone who officially represents the Lord, but the idea that they are sent means that they leave and represent him somewhere else. And even this is a sign of the judgment that is coming on the religious leaders, because what it says is, the kingdom of God is going beyond you. And there's nothing you can do to stop it, and you will not be included in it. And you see this as Jesus blesses his new people 
in some new ways. So look with me at verses 17 through 19. And look at what Jesus does after he calls his apostles. It says, He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him. They wanted to know what he said on behalf of God. And they came to be healed of their diseases. And scripture says, And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. Notice, first of all, who is coming. The scripture says that it's a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude. But notice, they're from Judea. So Judea is like the suburbs around Jerusalem. There are people from from Jerusalem there. But then it mentions two cities that should be surprising. So it says, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, those are two cities that Israel never conquered. Remember your Old Testament for just a minute, okay? So so God blesses his people. He rescues them from Egypt. He gives them Moses and then Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They are able to conquer the land of Canaan, but they don't do it completely. And that is partly by design. God says, you know, if you did this too fast, that you'd lose control of the land. The wild animals would overtake you. The land is too big for you. But because Israel rebelled and never followed God faithfully... They never completed the plan. And so Tyre and Sidon are cities that were never part of Israel, ever. And when it says that people from Tyre and Sidon were coming to hear Christ, they were listening to him, they are doing what the religious leaders are done doing. The religious leaders said, we don't care about what you say anymore. They just want to figure out what they can do to him. But people from outside Israel, people that do not inherit the blessings of God through Abraham, recognize that God is doing something new, and they go straight to Jesus. And Jesus ministers to them. He is showing that the kingdom of God is going global. And as he preaches, he shows his power To heal. It is a limitless power. It says, He healed them all. He never ran out of that power. He is demonstrating what He will be like as a king. He is showing what the blessings of the kingdom will be. And so as He preaches, and we're going to see His preaching in the coming weeks, that's what the rest of chapter 6 is. It's, It's one of His most famous messages. We're going to hear some of what he says, but as he preaches, he shows the blessings of being in a right relationship with God. Down at the end of this this chapter, as Jesus kind of concludes his sermon, he says this, and this is from verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He is demonstrating his power to bless. And he's asking the question, specifically of his disciples, people who have already committed to following him. Remember, that's who's gathered there to hear this sermon. And what you find is there were people that wanted his blessings, but didn't want 
to recognize his authority and obey him and treat him as the king. We cannot miss the awesome power and hope that Jesus demonstrates. And, and as, I, as I end this message, I, I want to do two things here. I, I want you to hold in one hand that amazing blessing of being in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But I also want to recognize the danger that applied to the scribes and the Pharisees still applies to you and me. What I said at the beginning, if you love the way that you do things without God, you have no future. And so for those of us who are within the church, if you would call yourself a believer today, this work that Jesus started right here, when he calls the 12 apostles, that's still going on today. Jesus is still building his kingdom through a long line of faithful men and women who have faithfully served and carried that torch, who have said the good news that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the dead, and he is calling a people together. Those are the disciples. Jesus is still calling disciples. He's calling them in Holly, and he's calling them in Africa. He is calling them in Asia. He is calling them all around the world. Jesus is still building his church. Not only is Jesus building his church in the exact same way that he began in our text today, he is renewing the church So what you find by the end of the New Testament is even churches that were, in some sense, kind of young, they're only like 50, 60 years old, some of those churches had lost their first love. And what you find Jesus doing in the book of Revelation is he calls to the church and says, be zealous and repent. He promises to supply all the needs of the church, but the problem with many of the churches in Revelation is, is that they no longer represent King Jesus. If you have an ambassador that fails to represent you, what do you do as the president? You fire him. And what Jesus does to the churches in Revelation, he says, if you don't represent my name, I will pull your lampstand out. He will snuff out the light of the church because they have not faithfully represented him. And so Jesus is not only continuing to build his church, but King Jesus continually renews his church. I would encourage you, look at Revelation 2 and 3. See what that is like. Jesus is still doing that today. I want to make it clear that as we talk about what God is doing, and God doing a new thing, that this has nothing to do with the age of the people or of the disciples. There were very old people in Jesus' day who rejoiced to see him. You can think, I already mentioned that prophet Simeon. He's an old man, and his heart is excited to see and hear what God is doing. There were young people who rejected him completely. And the same is true today, and the same is true in our church. We have older saints that are excited about what God is doing, and we have some younger saints who are less excited We have some younger people who are very excited and some older people who are maybe hard and cold. So the question has nothing to do with the age. It has everything to do with what is your relationship with King Jesus like? Churches, just like ancient Israel, develop traditions. 
And if you love your traditions instead of what Jesus wants to do in your community, Jesus has no use for you. He will build his kingdom, but he will build it through someone else. And we will not enjoy it. I believe that we as a church need to think very hard about this. Jesus wants us to make disciples. That means we ought to be able to see people who not only know what Jesus said, but they do what Jesus said. This is measurable. To some extent, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you are not a disciple. And if you do not do what Jesus asks, one day you're going to stand in front of him and he's going to look at you and say, I never knew you. As your pastor, I desperately want to make sure that that never happens. And so as we look at this text My prayer is that each of us would take a hard look at our lives. You ought to be able to look backwards 10 years and say, man, I was such a fool back then. And God willing, 10 years from today, you should be able to look back and say the same thing. A disciple is someone who continues to grow. Not only do you grow in knowledge, our church We do a lot of good things. But a disciple is someone who represents Christ. Your main job is to spread the good news that the king has come. And in all of our good works, we have to ask the question, do people in Holly know the gospel of Jesus Christ because of our ministries? Do they know that our sins can be forgiven because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? Or do they just have a check for a hundred bucks so that their water doesn't get shut off? Or do they just have a pantry that's a little bit fuller and yet they're still going to die and go to hell? If that's all we do as a church, then we are not representing Jesus well. And I am not convinced that we communicate the gospel clearly through our ministries. I think it might be the case that we as a church don't represent Christ as well as we should. Which means that unless we repent and become excited about what Jesus is doing, and that is still a possibility, unless we're willing to do that, Jesus will advance his kingdom somewhere else. And I don't say this to be discouraging. I say this because I believe that we can repent. The blessings of the kingdom are there. They are available. God is a God who is full of mercy. But it begins by being honest and looking at our church and saying, are we representing Jesus as we should? And if we can't honestly say yes, then we need to fall on our knees and ask for forgiveness and help and wisdom and leadership. And the God whose power never runs out will supply every need. He loves to give wisdom. And we'll see a time of amazing blessing where people come to faith in Christ and people grow in obedience. And even when life is hard, and so much of what Jesus is about to say, I cannot wait to preach my next message because he's going to talk about, blessed are you when people hate you. That's not the victory that you and I want. We don't want people to hate us. But Jesus says, you're blessed. And the blessing is there, and the blessing is real, and the blessing is available for you and for me. The question is, do you love Jesus? 
Or do you just love tradition? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts. I ask that you would help us, Lord, with great humility to submit to your will. We don't have wisdom, but you do. And I pray for your forgiveness for times when we have not represented you as well as we should. And I ask for your help. I pray that you give us a passion for Jesus that can't be contained. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.